Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Lead at Work and at Home. Hope you're having a great day. I am Mark Greenberg, and I'm thrilled that you've taken a couple minutes out of your day to join me. I know you are on the edge of your seat wondering what has been happening with my ritual of making the bed. I'm proud to report, since I've committed to making one change in the morning, I have successfully made my bed three weeks in a row. Now, if you ask me the quality of making of the bed, that might be a different conversation. But the point I'm trying to make is if we can set one intention when we get up and do it habitually, that's how we start changing our behavior. So for me, as I shared last week, struggling, challenges, low energy. And so the goal was just to make your bed. And so I'm really excited to continue to try these things. I also am proud to tell you that I've been off social media for three weeks. As I said last time, I've been a fiend for Twitter, Instagram, and I have not looked at it once. LinkedIn, yes, but that's for business. And I'm looking forward to trying these new routines. The latest one I'm adding is I'm trying to do what's called the six-week push-up challenge. It's an app with the whole goal of trying to train yourself to do 100 consecutive push-ups. I'm probably not going to get there. But I'm going to try, and it's given me a little bit of routine. So three days a week now, every other day I get an alarm on my phone. It's like, all right, push-up time. And I usually do 60 push-ups no matter what I'm doing. But again, it's me trying to find one behavior to change at a time and then slowly add things on. And for me, it's really helped with my energy. And I'm really proud of, of the work that I'm doing. And I challenge you to give it a try. Before I get to my interview with, with Michelle Molitor, founder and CEO of Nectar Consulting, I wanted to just share with you a thought that's been running through my head. And that's this idea of, of being proud. My grandfather, Herman Gersberg, I don't think we name kids Herman anymore, by the way. That would be really tough to be called Herman. Jack was my other grandfather. That's okay. But Herman, Herm, Hermie, yeah, maybe. But my grandfather was from uh, the Ukraine. He, he immigrated here in a small town in Perilla with his sisters. You know, immigrant story, hemming jeans, and really just became a, a really proud person. And a couple things really stuck out to me. Number one, he always had this chair. And I think as he got older, we were all afraid to sit on the chair. But anytime we were sitting in his chair and he walked in the room, we knew to immediately get up. It wasn't even a question. It's, and I think there's some Hebrew saying about rising for the elderly, but it wasn't a question. When I come home and my kids are sitting on the chair, I don't certainly get that. But the idea of being proud and having pride in this one story, I will never forget for the rest of my life. My grandmother, Herman's wife, she sadly passed away way before her time. Her name was Florence. And by the way, don't name your kid Florence. Uh, she died at about the age of 76. Amazingly sweet woman. I think it was probably one of the first times I dealt with um, with death at, as a teenager. But what I remember was my dad and I were working at a summer camp. And my grandmother passed away, I believe, on July 14th, 1991. I might have the year a little bit off. Sorry, Mom. And my dad and I went to camp like a normal day. And we had to go to Shiva. For those that don't know what Shiva is, it's a Jewish custom where we go to the bereaved and sit with them. It's really more for the people that are living than the person that has passed. And my grandfather 
was fairly religious. He grew up in, excuse me, he lived on Devon Avenue right next to an Orthodox temple called B'nai Reuven. I remember Rabbi Schusterman very well. He talked very quietly. But what I remember is my dad and I went to camp. We were both wearing shorts and T-shirts. We drove from Lincoln Park over to my grandfather's house. We knocked on the door. There's a bunch of people there. And he looks at us. He's like, what are you doing? And we said, well, we're here for the minion to pay our, you know, to sit with you for Shiva. He's like, you don't enter my house in shorts and T-shirt. How dare you do that? And I remember my dad turned white as a ghost. My grandfather looked at us and said, you go home, you change your clothes, and then you come back and join us. The distance between my home and my grandmother's home was about 40 minutes. So my dad and I got in the car. We drove all the way to our home in Glenview, put on a pair of khakis and I think I wore a rugby shirt, but a polo, sorry, a polo, a polo shirt and came back. And my grandfather looked at us and he says, I hope you will never forget when you are paying respects to someone that you always show up appropriately dressed for the situation. And it is a lesson that has stuck in my head. And I think my grandfather was just this really proud guy. I believe that when he probably saw us walking up the stairs in shorts and the T-shirts, he might have been thinking, what are my Orthodox neighbors thinking? And, and so it's really a great way for me to learn. And the reason I'm sharing this with you is because as of late, my daughter, who I adore, as you know, has been looking for affirmation. She's been looking for me to tell her she's doing a good job. She plays soccer on a travel soccer team. She loves it. She has fun, which is all my wife and I care about. And when the game ends, she will say, how did I do? And it's just an interesting question because the idea of being pr proud or proudful is really more about this feeling of, of deep pleasure or satisfaction from one's own achievement. And so my response to her is more you should be proud of yourself about what you did. It doesn't matter what I think because ultimately you're the one who looks at this as achievement. And the idea of winning and losing is so associated with how we, how we see ourselves in a performance. So if we win a game, we're proud of that. If we lose a game, we might feel bad. So when the question that was asked of myself, you know, are you proud of me? Well, of course I'm proud of you, but how do you feel? about yourself. For those of you that manage people and they come in and, and share with you a win, it's really easy to say, I'm proud of you. However, if you flip that and you say, wow, you should be proud of yourself. What an amazing accomplishment. What did you learn about yourself? Because we want to plant that seed for them to have a lot of prideful moments. You know, it's very easy for me to come up with some bullshit answer to my daughter and say, oh yeah, I love the way that you overlapped on this play. I love that you did this, but but really when it comes to internalizing how she feels in the, in the end of the day, when she's 22 years old, me consistently telling her how proud I am of her is not going to bode well for her. It doesn't mean I don't give her feedback. It doesn't mean that I neglect her. On the contrary, I will literally ask her open-ended questions specifically about her performance. Hannah, how did you feel when you took that penalty shot and the ball hit the upright and you missed? 
you know, Hannah, how did it feel when a girl fell to the ground and you picked her up and you showed good sportsmanship? So for me, taking this lesson from my grandfather about being proud and how to demonstrate to a younger person how to feel that way is a really, really interesting thing. And so my challenge for you this week is when a child, when when a, a, a spouse, when someone in your in your care, whether it be an employee, when they do something great, saying I'm proud of you is wonderful, but try to flip it and let them know that they should be very proud of their self and then give them specific reasons as to why they should be proud of your, of themselves. So I'm looking forward to reporting my update on my push-up challenge. I think I'm up to about 40 in a row. Please stay tuned. And I'm really excited to share with you a great interview. We talk a lot about the imposter syndrome. We get into some social-emotional development in our employees and way to empower each other. And I think you're going to really enjoy my interview with the founder and CEO of Nectar Consulting, Michelle Molitor. I am so excited. I've been having a chance to look around your website, and I find that the work you do has never been more germane and relevant to the world that we live in, all centered around social-emotional growth within employees, personal development. And I guess my starting point would be the name of your company, the word Nectar. What made you hone in and pick that word to name your business Nectar Consulting? That's a great question. It actually, um, it, it started more than 20 years ago. I was actually just first looking into becoming a coach. Um, I had my previous life, I was a creative director in web development and um, had gotten laid off, bullied out of my job essentially, and was like, oh gosh, what do I do now? And I was looking at coaching and was like, huh, maybe this is something I could do for a living. And so I was meeting with a colleague who was a business coach to learn more about it. What is this thing called coaching? And afterwards I wandered into a gallery in Sausalito and I stumbled across this painting by uh, an amazing watercolor artist and the painting is called Like Honey to a Bee. And it's this beautiful um, architectural rendering of this Victorian house, um, super detailed with these, I call them butter bees. They're giant butterflies with bumblebee bodies. <laughs> and it, it's, um, it really struck me and apparently embedded in my subconscious because as I was looking and thinking about starting my own company, I woke up very early one morning and Nectar Consulting had popped into my head. I was like, oh, that's it. That's the name of my company. And the reason why, Mark, is because bees, they go from flower to flower, extracting the pollen, extracting the nectar, and they take that and they go back to the hive and they produce honey. And it's this, this whole community that works together and the 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 nectar that they collect is what feeds their work in the world and so my my job my work in the world is about helping people find their own nectar and extract that and bring their good work out into the world with greater joy and ease and well-being and so um it's uh it's worked quite well all these years for sure 
And what's the biggest challenge, though, when you try to coach and develop other people? What's what's the biggest hurdle you have to face? Their willingness to want to create positive change for themselves. Um, not everyone is ready for change. That's why working one-on-one -on -one with folks is more powerful than I find than working with larger groups. I still do that and it still works in varying degrees, but there's always gonna be those who look down their nose at this thing called change or positive psychology, or you want me to just change my mind and it's gonna change my whole life. And in essence, yes, it does. There's a process to it, right? It's not just a snap of the fingers and that makes that kind of change, but um, the, it's that resistance to letting go of old behaviors and patterns and thought beliefs and adopting new ones, which is the most challenging part, but the most rewarding piece of it all. Have you noticed since you in the last couple of years with the pandemic, I feel like all roads with questions go back to the pandemic. We should start like a drinking game every time someone says pandemic. <laughs> right. I I love it. But have you noticed, though, a change in the way that people respond to the way that they're challenged? You know, in my practice, I, I feel like as a coach, when you don't own a business and you're not specifically in charge of employees, you can go to places that an owner or manager can't go because your only intention is to help support that person. Have you noticed any reluctance at all with people wanting to make change because they've been so embedded in a daily set of routines, rituals, staying in their home, being quarantined? Um, yes. And there's, there's a lot of, collective trauma that we're all experiencing right now um, because of everything that's happened and how it has dramatically reshaped our world, right? From one end to the other. And so people have, have shifted and working from home and um, having the convenience of that, right? Employers are now saying, oh, well, you have to go back to the office. And they're like, why should I? I haven't been there for two years. Why change now? Right. So there's a lot of dynamics. Um, people's perspectives have shifted. And yet there's there's benefits to both sides of that coin. And so em employers are having to find the middle ground that um, supports the growth of the work and the company but also supports the growth and the well-being of the employees like never before. They, they used to not have to worry about that. You, you either came to the office or you didn't have a job. Now it's the employees have so much more bargaining power than they used to have. And it's really um, shifted the power dynamic um, in corporate America, I think. Have, have you noticed in the work you've done lately, the great resignation has percolated with so much turnover and, and challenges with retention within a workforce? Yes, absolutely. For that very reason, right? Um, I think there's, you could perhaps call it a great awakening. People realizing 
that they have different options for how they work. Um, they realized commuting two or three hours a day wasn't sustainable, not good for their well-being, and have decided, I don't, I don't want to go back to that way of operating, that way of being in the world. And so they've made conscious lifestyle choices to work more in a way that works for them versus working against them all in the name of earning a paycheck. That's really interesting. Do you think it transcends generations or have you seen a similar type of attitude in, you know, boomers, Gen X, millennials, what's next, Gen Z, and Generation Alpha, I think, is the next one that I heard. Have you noticed a change at all in the way that people see what you just shared? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I'm of a more mature age, Mark. <laughs> and you, I think can folks... You tell me a bit, can you tell me a bit more about now, when you say mature, are you talking like reading reading books have very big words where you have to look up the definition or do you have enough <laughs> No, no. I'm, I'm in my 50s, right? And so the perspective of the, the 50, 60 somethings, right, is very different than the perspective of the 20s and 30 somethings, for example, because of our ingrained experience of how this is how work is done. It looks a particular way. It feels a particular way. And the the younger generations, I sound so old, I'm really not, but um, the, but the younger generations, because they've had a very different experience, they're much more willing to go, oh, well, I can, I, you want me to do this? You want me to fit into this box and I don't want to fit into that box? Never mind, I'll go get another job someplace else. So there's mm. a much, much higher um, turnover rate and, and people um, are finding they can be fueled by their passions, not just a paycheck. And so that's way, why I, that's part of the great resignation and in the, in the quiet quitting that's been happening. 50 is a new 40, by the way. I'm not sure if you read that lately, but that's what I'm hearing. That Thank 50, you. You're very welcome. Um, but it's really <laughs> interesting you say that. I, I do this really interesting webinar where I actually use music to look at multi-generational workforces. And you put on the Beatles of Baby Boomers. And then you go to Nirvana with Gen X. And lately, I've been putting on this band for, was it Gen Z? Greta Van Fleet, which is kind of a, a fun band. And the way that they look is the same as the Beatles. And it's just interesting to hear people's attitudes towards even just looking at the different generations when you think about around the corner, because I feel that so much of being a great change manager, entrepreneur, what even a parent is always anticipating what's going to be around the corner. What are some trends that are coming up in some of the work that you're doing? Gosh, um, that's a great question, Mark. Um, I would say, you know, it's really looking at employees as whole human beings um, and making sure that those whole human being needs are really accounted for. You know, you can look at some of the big tech firms like Google and Facebook and 
uh, eBay, for example, they're all in my backyard. So I bring those up. Um, and they have, have for many years prior to the pandemic, they've had flex hours, they've had, you know, completely paid cafeterias and, and different restaurants on quote campus um, so that people can focus on the work at hand. Um, there's a there's a captive audience to that as well, right? The longer they stay, the longer they'll work. So now as we move forward and people are in this hybrid workforce now, um, companies really have to look at what are the different benefits that they can provide to support that whole well-being without burning people out. Um, burnout is real and it's a very costly um, expense to corporations. And so by creating shorter work weeks, for example, a four-day work week, um, studies have shown that um, and employee productivity actually goes up and um, absenteeism goes down. So I think the pandemic has been a real game changer in that sense. It's really opened people's eyes to, there's different ways to do this and it doesn't have to look the way it's always looked in the past. I could just see my, my grandfather who immigrated from Russia, you know, right around the war hearing well, yeah, just work less and, and take a four-hour day or go play pickleball at lunchtime and, you know, focus on your social, emotional well-being. And, and I'm totally agreeing with you, but it's just always funny to me because the other generations will be like talking negatively about the current generation. It just seems to be this endless loop. You did in your website, and I did want to ask you about this, you talk about your five disciplines that you focus in on. And aside from words that I, I, I'm familiar with, experiential, credibility, focus, and I think spirit was the fourth one, you use a word I rarely see. And, and I, I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about the word affinity and how that translates or, in, or, or has some kind of relationship to um, motivating people in, in engagement and finding the highest level of productivity. Well, I found that... People um, are are hardwired. Literally, it's in our DNA to connect with other people, and the pandemic has been so challenging on that little aspect of our humanness. And and finding like minds within your workplace. Um, not that everyone needs to be the same. That's not what I'm saying but understanding how other people think and their perspectives enhances that sense of connection, camaraderie, affinity that we have with each other. So we feel like we're part of a, a team, a whole unit that then can, can harmonize more effectively to productively get the work done. So the more connection points we have in a good way with our colleagues and coworkers, the more understanding we have through enhanced communication skills, through greater um, you know, emotional intelligence, the more effective those teams can be to see 
what works, what doesn't work, and how each person can work from their strengths, their sweet spot, if you will, um, where their their strengths, their values, um, their expertise all come together, so that it it breaks out of the traditional box or model and says, well, on this project, so-and-so is going to be in charge of this piece because of their affinity for this type of work or this perspective or this expertise that they bring to the table versus always having it be roles assigned in, in concrete for the life of their, their position in an organization, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, that's a very rich word. And I, and I actually shamelessly, I actually Googled the word affinity because I was trying to think about the context from your website, how you would use it. And I started thinking about the correlation between youth sports and the affinity that young people have to playing Little League. And, and the, the word I kept thinking of is affiliation and what it means to be a part of something. In particular, talking about things like mental health and executive functioning challenges. But when you really feel an emotional connection to a group of people, there's a very good chance you're not running off to the next job. And then it also helps to have further ways to innovate your company. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because um, when you have people who like working with each other, it's more likely that they're willing to sit down on the table and brainstorm and, you know, more minds on a problem can can bring out a whole variety of, of different results. There's a difference, right, between design by committee, which we don't really like because that can turn into chaos, versus um, having a group of people at a table who see the problem from different perspectives through different lenses and go, wow, if we look at it through this lens, how is it going to serve our customer? If we look at it through this lens, how is it going to serve the community? If we look at it through this lens, how is it going to serve um, the the kids? Whatever, whatever the problem is, but having those different focal points um, is super beneficial to coming up with stellar solutions. Do you think that we have the capabilities to teach adults empathy? To teach adults empathy. Yes, I do. Um, oh, how, do how do you do that? Well, it's, and there's caveats to that, right? Um, but in a general sense, when you can help people step into the shoes of another ever so briefly, mm -hmm. it can totally shift the dynamic. So let me give you a great example. I was doing a program with um, a company, a whole organization. Um, we did a two day um, retreat and I had them break out into groups based on their departments, right? And so this this was a 50 person organization at the time and so they were going around and they were sharing one one story about their childhood that shaped who they have become and the role that they were doing at the at the organization and the group that i i tuned into 
was the finance department. And the controller of the department um, was sharing that he had he'd grown up in China. He was very poor. Um, he often roamed the streets without a lot of food to eat. And he, you know, he grew up, he had the opportunity to come to the United States and, and became a, a, a controller. And he's, his colleagues would say, oh my gosh, he drives me nuts because he's such a penny pincher. Mm-hmm. He's always looking at every single penny and like nitpicks us to make sure that our, our expense reports are this and that and the other thing. And when they heard this story, they're like, wow, now I understand why you pinch pennies. And you look because of his upbringing, it was how his brain was trained. Like there was a huge scarcity conversation that he was working from. And it's what was the, the pain that turned into his purpose and his fuel in life. And so seeing that, seeing him through that lens created much greater compassion and empathy for the the work and the conversation. So it shifted the whole dynamic of the team because now they knew what was his underlying why, his drivers, the way he was showing up in his work and and created greater empathy and understanding. That's a great example. And it sounds like almost the experiential part of learning and getting someone away from a desk really made a huge difference for that team. Yes, it was really beautiful to watch. It really, really was. All right, Michelle, I got to ask you, you are a hypnotherapist. Is this correct? Yes, I am. All right, Michelle, what's amongst other things, but yes, I'm sorry, sorry, no, no, I'm sorry. I had a whole list here. Shame, shame on me. You might never come back to my show again if, if I don't do a better job. But um, <laughs> what is a hypnotherapist? What is a hypnotherapist, and how does it relate to what you do? I'm really curious about this. Sure. So I've been an executive coach for over 20 years, Mark, and I am a learning junkie. Can I have another workshop, please? I am always learning and growing and stretching and and releasing old layers of myself that no longer serve. And I do that with great joy to help others do the same thing. And it has been um, the why in my work, right? And um, gosh, at least seven years ago now, I discovered this, this modality, this tool called Rapid Transformational Therapy, or RTT for short. And in doing the work for myself to help remove another block, right, take off another set of blinders that were inhibiting my success, I discovered this amazing tool that enabled me to get at the deeper subconscious blocks that were creating the conscious um, barriers to the next level of my success. And I was able to remove those barriers in a matter of weeks. So things that I've been trying to get at for literally years and years and years were gone. I was like, oh, all right, you got my attention. So I went on to get trained and certified and quickly saw how combining hypnotherapy with coaching um, is a game changer for so many people. So hypnotherapy is essentially a way of um, taking you into an alpha brainwave state. It's that half awake, half asleep place. Mm -hmm. And in that state, you're, you're awake, you're in control, but you're super relaxed. 
And so your mind allows me to talk to your subconscious, which is 90% of your brain power. Your conscious mind, your working mind is 10%. Your subconscious and unconscious is 90%, okay? And so everything that's ever happened to you is neatly stored in the files in your subconscious programming. So any events, any traumas um, that happened to you earlier in life are all stored there. And in those moments of those events, we create decision points. For example, maybe you were bullied on the playground when you were in first grade, or you had a teacher who, who shamed you in front of the class. And we, we took on beliefs about ourselves. I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not worthy. I'm not deserving. Whatever those were. And they're just running in your underlying programming, just like in the operating system of your computer. Okay. We don't even know they're there oftentimes, but they shape how we show up in the world, the work that we do in the world and how we stand up and speak out for ourselves or don't. Okay. And so by accessing these deeper beliefs, we can neutralize the emotional charge around those former beliefs and literally rewire your brain, building new neural pathways around new positive, supportive beliefs so that how you start to show up in a new way is filled with confidence, has released self-doubt. Um, you're, you're willing to speak your truth, to ask for what you need, um, to value yourself in a deeper way so that you can unlock your own potential at a whole new level. Um, wow. it's, it's really powerful and it works very rapidly because we're not, I'm not sitting and, and talk, having someone talk through the problem at a conscious level. We're actually getting to it at the subconscious level and literally eliminating or significantly reducing the emotional barriers and replacing them. Um, it's, it's beautiful work. It's so rewarding. I could tell you stories for days about how it's changed people's lives. Is this, it, it sounds, and, and pardon me if this is a silly question, but it almost sounds like a, a cognitive behavior therapy approach. It is a combination of cognitive behavioral therapy, um, neuro-linguistic programming, positive psychology, um, I mm -hmm. weave in somatics, energetics, um, and coaching into this process so that it moves things forward in a good way much more rapidly than um, you would with coaching by itself or even therapy by itself. They all have their places and they all serve their purposes. Um, and so I just happen to be a very um, impatient person. <laughs> and so I'm like, how can I get from point A to point B faster so that I can release the stuff that's been holding me back, let go of the junk in my trunk, if you will, that's weighing me down and, and soar higher more freely um, to have the life that I really want to create and make the impact that I really want to have. If someone though, Michelle has trauma, does that mm -hmm. change the way that you would engage them? Because 
I would imagine at that point, there's probably repressed feelings that are way, you know, yeah, you can move forward, but until you actually go backwards and address those, do you have to get into like the psych psychology of people? You mentioned the word positive psychology a few times. Do you have to like take a deep dive and, you know, people have to face things that are uncomfortable and to really start questioning and analyzing things that happened to them when they were younger? Well, that's a that's a beautiful question, Mark, um, because in in typical cognitive behavioral therapy, yes, you would you would look at that issue and you would talk about that issue and you would roll it around um, to get to the center of it so you can let it go with uh, hypnosis as a tool because I'm able to access the subconscious mind. I'm simply asking your mind what's at the root cause of this belief. So let's take a very typical negative belief that people hold. I'm not enough. I'm mm -hmm. not good enough. I'm not strong enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not talented enough. I'm not lovable enough. You name it. Lots of those not enoughnesses going on out there. Okay. And so when you ask the subconscious, what's at the root cause of this feeling of not enough, your mind will bubble up to the surface the image, the events, the moment in time where you had that belief come into play. And it might be a traumatic event. It might be when you're, you know, your sibling said something not nice, bullied you. It might have been a very traumatic event, but we're not reliving the events. We're just looking at it as if it was on a computer monitor. So you're, you're acting, your mind allows you to be an outside observer to that event. Wow, I can see myself sitting in my bedroom crying because my, my brother was bullying me, right? Whatever it might've been. And so you're able to realize, oh, I'm not that, I'm not that little kid anymore. I'm safe. I'm not in that place. I'm not in that environment. And then we, can start to rewire and build a new way of seeing themselves. So part of the work that I do, Mark, is that I create a customized recording. So based on everything that I've learned inside of a session and the intake that I have with a client, um, I'm weaving in new ways of thinking, being, and, and behaving in the world um, in, a very, in a very relaxing tone, in a very specific cadence that people listen to every single day as they're drifting off to sleep. And that recording is mixed in with um, intentional binaural beat music to help entrain mm -hmm. their brain at this specific frequency and instilling those new words and beliefs. So by listening to it every night as they drift off to sleep over 30 days, that repetition is what builds new neural pathways in your brain. And so just like listening to a song on the radio over and over, you remember the lyrics from those songs decades ago, right? It's the same thing, but now you're using it to your benefit to tell yourself, I am enough, I am worthy, I am deserving, I am lovable, whatever those words might need to be for you so that it gets embedded at that deeper level and you can show up in a whole new way that starts to create this positive ripple effect in all areas of your life. Not only your 
your mental, emotional well-being, oftentimes people's physical well-being is shifted in a positive way. That um, sounds really interesting. And it's, it's on, the, on this podcast, I've been very open about mental health, my own challenges and struggles. Uh, and one of the things I work on is neuroplasticity. And I think this is what you're referring yep. to about re rewiring Absolutely. the brain and making sure that the modifications or the connections can be wired itself. And so any trauma that has happened that has been rewired to think negatively, whether you're ruminating or focusing on the past with cognitive distortions, you can do the same thing with the positive. And I think that is what you're referencing. Is that correct? Absolutely. Yes. Neuroplasticity is a $5 word. <laughs> I call it rapid rewiring. <laughs> Fair enough. And I, and I see it's trademark. So therefore neuroplasticity is not trademark, correct? <laughs> yes. It's a scientific term. Um, rapid rewiring is what I coined as the combination of this process, the coaching and the hypnotherapy together, which is this melange of all of these different modalities that I weave together in a very customized fashion for each client. That sounds really interesting. I will have to check. I'll have to check that out. It sounds really, really interesting. In, in preparation of our talk today, I know we were going to talk a bit about the imposter syndrome. Guess who just admitted Michelle, who has that he has the imposter syndrome, a very famous actor. I have no idea. Do tell. Tom Hanks. Oh, there you go. Doesn't and surprise I'm like, me. I'm like, if, if, if Forrest Gump can have imposter syndrome, well, I certainly can have it too. And it's talked a lot about what is it? How do you identify it? And what are some ways that people can forge? Because I don't think it's the kind of thing that just magically disappears. So what are some things that people can do to really start learning a bit more about taking a strength-based approach to their maturation development? Sure. So um, imposter syndrome essentially um, is the, the ongoing belief that I don't know as much as people think that I do, and I'm going to be found out as a fraud. Um, I don't have all the answers. I'm not as good as they make me out to be, despite all the accolades or the the credits or the the awards that someone has has earned. And seventy percent of adults have suffered from imposter syndrome at some point in their life, and twenty five to thirty percent of high performing individuals. Um, have dealt with imposter syndrome. So it's not something that is necessarily going to disappear from your life, but how you handle it and how quickly you're able to move through it to in a more resilient way is the goal, right? And what I found through all my work and research, Mark, is that um, the underbelly of, of self-doubt is, or of imposter syndrome is self-doubt our own set of blinders. <laughs> Did I read somewhere that you mentioned Hippocrates? Does that sound familiar? Or am I, am I, am I projecting from something else? I feel like I read somewhere I, where. There might be, I have, I have a variety of quotes on my websites. That's no. what it was. Okay. So the quote that I saw then, I, I want to make sure I'm correct was, the natural healing force within each of us is the greatest force in getting well. Does that sound like something Michelle would say? 
Oh yeah, that's from that's from my book. I think that okay, that's from my book. You mean you're you mean you're not you're not Hippocrates? I thought I was speaking to a Greek god. Is that is that not accurate? Uh no. I if I was a Greek god, I would be male, and that is not the case. That's fair. That's fair. <laughs> Well, it's funny because as I was reading this, it reminded me of a really embarrassing story. My my in-laws took my wife and I to go see this Greek play called Metamorphosis. It's all about Greek mm -hmm. gods. And there's one scene when Narcissus came on and he was completely naked, full frontal nudity. And here I am with my mother-in-law and father-in-law. I'm like, I don't think that this is a very good idea. So anyhow, <laughs> we watched the show and that was it. Um, all right. Michelle, I want to end with my world's famous lightning round. Round. Are you ready for this? I'm ready. Is Let's your is your cerebellum is your cerebellum activated and your medulla oblongata? You're ready to rock and roll. Yes, absolutely. Okay. <laughs> Besides Michelle Molitor, who are some other notable graduates from University of Florida? Oh, that's it. Interesting question. Never got that one before. And I've been on a boatload of podcasts. Um, the only one, the only one that comes to mind, and I'm not a football fan necessarily. And there's Emmett a whole Smith. yes. That was I, I predicted that one. I am a, I'm incredibly knowledgeable on Gainesville alumni. You might not have known this about me, but this is what I, I did what not. I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's one of my hidden talents. But Faye Dunaway, mommy dearest. Oh, Bob Villa. Remember that show, My Old House? Is that what yes. it was called? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Ab Abby Wambach, a very very accomplished um, spokesperson as well as a United States women's national soccer player. Chicago's yes. very own David Ross. And my personal favorite thing that I learned, you ever see the movie Office Space? Mm, I've heard of it, but I don't think I've seen it. So Milton in <laughs> Office Space. And if you, th that's a great movie for you, um, for you to watch. All right. Next question. Does Michelle. Oh, to answer your, to answer your question, both my, my mom, my dad, and my uncle. There we go. I forgot about them. Oh, oh I, just saw, <laughs> I just saw their name in the old Google machine. I, I, I forgot to mention that. Is your mom's name Anne-Marie? Did I get that right? No, my mom's name I, is Judy. I know. I just made that up. Sorry. Um, what crazy <laughs> activities do you dream of trying someday? Uh, crazy activities. Um, I, at the top of my bucket list, I want to go on African photo safari. Oh, yeah. Amazing. Yeah. What's holding? What's I gotta holding make some you friends with some elephants. Mm -hmm. What's holding you back from accomplishing that? Um, full truth, having the right person to go on the trip with. Fair. That's fair. Does Michelle fold her pizza? Nope. I I I cut it. I'm a pizza cutter. Yeah. I yeah. Well, that's, yeah. Uh, what's your favorite decade and why? Um, I'm going to have to go with the eighties cause we had some great music. Yeah. I'm going to throw a curveball. I would actually pick the fifties. I feel like it's the, it's the decade that was the calmest, you know, like, uh, leave it to beaver and you people would talk to each other and just, there's families would eat dinner together. And so like, I would go very, very old fashioned 
And Michelle Molitor, my last question is if people want to get a hold of you and learn about all these amazing things you're doing, including the books you've written, how can they how can they get in touch with you? You can always find me at michellemolitor.com. That's Michelle with one L. And um, LinkedIn, Facebook, um, come on over to my Rapid Rewire for Success group in Facebook. It's a lovely community. Or um, Rapid Rewire on Instagram. So, yeah, so many places. Michelle does also, we did not get to it today, but some great work with women and her book, I believe, Breakthrough Healing. Is that on Amazon as well, Michelle? That is on Amazon. Wonderful. Well, Michelle, I want to thank you very much for taking the time to join me. I think we really were able to tap into some really interesting things. And let's make sure we find time and do this again. Thank you so much, Mark. It's been a joy being here with you. I appreciate your time and uh, and all the fun questions. Awesome. Thanks, Michelle. I hope you enjoyed the show and wishing you a great rest of your week. And what better way to end a show than with a joke? A man was sick and tired of going to work every day while his wife stayed home. Can you relate to that? He wanted her to see what he went through, so he prayed. Dear Lord, I go to work every day, and I put in eight hours while my wife stays at home. I want her to know what I go through. So please, please allow her body to switch with mine for a day. Can you imagine? God, in his infinite wisdom, granted the man's wish. The next morning, sure enough, the man awoke as a woman. He cooked breakfast for his family. He took the kids to carpool. He took out their clothes. He packed their lunches, drove them to school. He came home and picked up the dry cleaning and stopped at the bank to make a deposit, went grocery shopping, drove home to put away the groceries, paid the bills, and balanced the checkbook. He cleaned the cat's litter and bathed the dog. And then it was 1 p.m. And he hurried to make the beds, do the laundry, vacuum, dust, sweep, mop, Ran to school to pick up the kids and got into an argument with them on the way home. Set out cookies and milk and got the kids organized with their homework and then set up the ironing board and watched TV while he did the ironing. At 4.30 p.m., he began washing potatoes and getting ready for dinner. After dinner, he cleaned the kitchen, ran the dishwasher, folded laundry, bathed the kids, and put them to bed finally at 9 p.m. He was exhausted. And though his daily chores weren't finished, he went to bed where he was expecting to make love, which he managed to get through without a complaint. The next morning, he awoke up and immediately knelt knelt down to the bed and said, Lord, Lord, I don't know what I was thinking. I was so wrong to envy my wife for being able to stay home. Please, please, please let us trade back. The Lord, in his infinite wisdom, replied, my son, I feel you have learned your lesson. And I will be happy to change things back to the way they were. You'll just have to wait nine months, though. You got pregnant last night. On that note, so long, everybody.